On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kumar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parent stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. I'm feeling a little under the weather today, so I might sound funny, uh, but today we get to talk to Jameis Lafreniere. He's the founder of Sophie's Hope, and his daughter Sophie has a glycogen storage disease type 1B. Jameis has done a lot in a very short amount of time, so I think Brittany and Sonneth are going to have a great conversation with him. Well, we are so excited to have you today, Jameis, my dear friend, who I think we've known each other for maybe a year now, but feels like a lifetime. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit just about you and your family and Sophie? Yeah, well, it's uh, thanks for having me on. And I know I know all of you, which is great, right? So we'll talk a little bit. Sonneth and I connected on like the very early part of this journey. And then you know, Brittany, you and I over the last year getting to know each other with Evie's journey. So thanks for having me. And, and I'm happy to share my story. So, um, so yeah, our family is, um, we're based here in, in Massachusetts and our daughter, Sophie. So we have an older daughter, Allie. Sophie um, has glycogen storage disease type 1B. So um, it is an ultra rare subtype within kind of the glycogen storage disease family. Um Probably, I mean, the numbers we get are about one in a million, but I mean, that kind of leaves us with a couple thousand across the globe is what we think. And I think like a lot of rare diseases, the more testing, the more accurate, that sort of thing. I think those numbers will go up. Um, but she was diagnosed just before she turned two. So we can talk a little bit at some point about that, but that's kind of unique for GSD. Um, she was diagnosed a little bit late. We had a, a little bit of a roundabout journey there. Um, but immediately after she was diagnosed, um, we just wanted to do more. We wanted to get involved. And for me and for us, it felt right to, to create a foundation in Sophie's name. So the Sophie's Hope Foundation is our 501c3 based here in Hopkinton. And as Sanath can, can kind of prove those first you know few months, I had no clue what I was doing. We, we just did it. We set up a 501c3 and we started raising money. Um, that's one of our strengths. We've done a good job of fundraising and kind of building up that, that infrastructure. And then 
over the last three years, I, I really feel like we've evolved into a really strong patient advocacy organization. And, you know, we can touch on that a little bit more. But, you know, again, we started as, you know, thinking we were just going to raise money um, and give it to a specific doctor or someone. We figured that was easy. We thought raising the money was hard. We would give it to someone smarter than us. They would fix, you know, they'd cure the disease and, and we'd move on. But I think we all know now in the rare disease space, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And, um, you know, everybody's path is, is different. And I think we all learn from each other. But I think one of the things I've learned is that, you know, we're all in, a, you know, all these diseases are in different places. And, you know, it's up to us to kind of chart our own path. So, you know, I think we've evolved into a really strong uh, global organization. And we can talk more about that as well. But but that's really our, uh, our journey. Sophie is, you know, from the outside, she's a She's great. She she develops very well. I mean, but I think you know you know the uh, the disease. You know, Brittany. It's 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 very dangerous. The the risk of hypoglycemia. It's a twenty four seven, you know, management and monitoring monitoring from kind of the family. So again, she's doing really well. She's hilarious. She's all those great things that most of these rare disease kids are. And she's a fighter. And she's had to be way too brave for someone so little. So I think it's, you know, as a parent, all we want to do is continue to fight and, and, um, and make things a little bit easier for her as she gets older. So. I just remember a year ago hearing your story on once upon a gene and relating to so many of the things that you guys have gone through and the symptoms that you experienced. Can you share with us a little bit about, how you arrived at the diagnosis and what those symptoms looked like for you and your family? Yeah. So Margo would be, my wife, Margo would be the, she's the best at telling this story. I probably butcher it because, you know, she, she was the one that, that just kept pushing. Um, we, you know, knowing something wasn't right. I was, to be completely honest, I was kind of that dad that, that felt like, you know, nothing's wrong with her. Like, you know, she's off the growth chart, like no way, like, you know, she, she's going to be fine. So Margo gets all the credit for that, but it was really like lots of different doctor's appointments. And I think like a lot of these kids and especially in the GSD space or maybe other metabolics, it was a lot of failure to failure to thrive. Right. She was, she was small. She, you know, she was vomiting her, like when she'd eat, she'd vomit, she had an aversion to food. Um, you know, there's other things that I see now that I would look back on and be like, oh yeah, she, she would get red in the face a lot. She would get hot and sweaty, like things that we didn't think were a big deal at the time. I look back on now and I'm like, you know, she was probably, you know, having low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. Um, but it was really that failure to thrive and her, 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 um, difficulty with eating. Like we just could not get her really to eat. So we were going to food therapy. We were doing a lot of things like that. She also had an egg and dairy allergy, which complicated things. Um, so that also that testing and things that we were doing is what led us down that path. So we discovered the disease, her disease. We weren't looking for a rare disease diagnosis. We were not expecting it. I was completely surprised. You know, again, I expected to hear, oh, you know, we there's this, we got to tweak this a little bit. So it was completely surprised. But um, I, I give full credit to a couple different doctors at Boston Children's that just, you know, they looked a little deeper into the charts and some of the labs and, and they looked at her blood tests and 
one of the symptoms in GSD-1B is neutropenia. So her white blood cells are really low. Um, and that led us to do some, you know, panel testing and they ultimately diagnosed her with GSD-1B. So I don't know if anyone would ever have that same kind of diagnosis story, even for GSD-1B, um, especially having it around the age of two. Um, you know, so we look back and we feel fortunate that there was no catastrophic events or anything like that. But I also feel guilty and terrible that for two years, she was probably pretty uncomfortable, um, you know, while we were trying to figure it out. Um, so we're grateful that we got to the diagnosis. It, and I also am empathetic to people that go through years and years and years. I mean, it felt like a lifetime for us. Um, but in reality, it was, you know, six to nine months of like testing and trying to figure things out, which in the rare disease space, I guess is, uh, I guess we can call it fortunate. So. Yeah, there's some folks that get even luckier and get uh, diagnosed at birth. Uh, I know, I know someone that actually got the rare disease diagnosis in like the first few weeks of birth, and and they're onto their onto the races. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's so interesting how their diagnostic odyssey of every person is so unique and so different. Um, and it's also dependent on the hospital system that you're a part of and the physicians that treat you and how much time and attention they've had on that day when they looked at your chart. Um, I think there's just a lot of randomness in this, in this, in this whole odyssey. Um, so, and that's, I agree completely. And I think in this day and age, there shouldn't be, I think we all kind of can agree on that. And, you know, the ability and the availability of whole exome sequencing, I think we can all kind of scream from the rooftop that, you know, whether it's newborn screening or, just access to whole exome sequencing. We ended up probably two years later going through whole exome sequencing because the the results we got were, they weren't, they were from like a panel testing. It wasn't very detailed and we wanted to know more about the specific mutations and you know, that sort of thing. So we ended up doing whole exome sequencing. And when you get those reports, you can kind of see how, how valuable that would be to somebody struggling to find a diagnosis. So yeah. We had a very roundabout way and I would be hard pressed to find another, even one B family that went through the same thing. So unfortunately. What was that like then once you got the diagnosis and were you thinking instantly like there must be some sort of treatment or how did, how did you reflect upon that? And then once you found out what the treatment was, how did that feel for you? Um, yeah, I, again, I look back and it was, it's still a little bit of a blur. Like I try and I don't like to really think back to it. I think like a lot of us, but I, I, um, I do remember and this, the person probably shouldn't have said it, but somebody did say to us like, oh, there, there, there should be a cure soon. Right. Or something silly like that. I just like, you don't want to, you know, unless there really is, they probably shouldn't be said, but, um, but we have, we went home, I don't know, maybe it was just the headspace I was in, but, but I could not wrap my head around having to give Sophie cornstarch, um, every couple hours to keep her alive. Right. Especially cause for 19 months, 20 months, whatever it was, we hadn't been doing that yet. Right. So, um, so that was a huge shock to, to learn that that was the treatment is cornstarch. Um, and it was, I mean, I still look back at that, you know, the diagnosis meeting, it was kind of, you know, just send you on your way and, you know, here's what we think you should do. And there was no support groups. There was no, 
you know, find this website, look up these people. And I mean, I think that's what's inspired us and led us to to really evolve Sophie's Hope Foundation into this Cure GSD 1B and, and create a true patient support group because we definitely did not feel that when Sophie was diagnosed. And I mean, to this day, like I still, I, I mean, it's great that we have this cornstarch treatment, but but I still can't believe that that's the best we can do in 2023 um, for these kids. So, How many patients have you guys identified with this disease so far? Uh, I mean, truly identified, I'd say probably about a thousand. Um, you know, we've done a lot of outreach and, you know, stuff through Facebook and, you know, we're working on, we're trying to ramp up our patient registry efforts. You know, we, we did join RareX. We've got some of that going. We haven't really promoted it yet. So, um, so one of the things we are trying to do is get our arms around that better. But, you know, I think you do like one of the things that helped us is you, you do start to connect with, you kind of find your, your crew, you know, your, your group of people either that have, you know, kids around the same age or same struggles or same thing, or like we, we've been fortunate to find a couple of, of, um, of parents that their kids are, you know, maybe in their teens. So, so they know so much more than we do. Um, and that's, that's been super helpful for us too. So, um, but, but our goal has really been, you know, to expand and try to find patients all over the world. And I think you start to deal with challenges of, of language, culture, access to the Internet, access to Facebook. Right. I mean, we all social media is a good tool, but it's very limited, um, you know, so trying to connect through different doctors or research centers in different parts of the world um, has been one of the things we've been doing. Um, I'm always fascinated with with rare diseases that span across the globe, I mean there 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 are some that are concentrated in certain population subtypes, and but then there are some that are just t- truly distributed across the globe. Um, what fascinates me uh, from a from someone that runs a nonprofit for creating treatments is is how do you get that message across to everyone around the world to come and support you in in your journey of treatment development. Uh, I'm curious to know what has worked for you guys. It's, um, I think, slow and steady. And, and I think for us, like being patient, I think at, at, at first I was like, we have to talk to everybody tomorrow, today, yesterday. And I think it's just, it's it's not natural and it probably won't happen. Um, so I think just in, in kind of, if for us, we, you know, finding people in certain regions i mean i don't know use germany for example right you know someone that speaks english and can help us translate things we're doing into into german or french or or whatever that is um so finding those other advocates like yourself to join you know your board or your you know be an advocate that sort of thing and then help translate we just i would say this past year is when we really started to create educational material website and, and a lot of times, like, we'll put it out in English and someone will volunteer and say, oh, you know, let me translate that into Portuguese or can we can we translate that into Spanish? So um, so we've been doing a lot of that. But I, I again, that's a that's still a small part of the globe. Right. Getting to Asia, getting to, to obviously other parts of the world can be really difficult. So um, it's still a work in progress. But I think slow and steady. And I think once. I kind of believe in the, if you build it and you do it right and, and you show success and, and you kind of lead by example that, 
that people will see all the effort and everything you're doing. And if, if you can show some successes along the way, I think that helps people um, get excited and get behind it. So, but it's not easy. I mean, it's definitely been one of the hardest things. So what's harder, uh, running a nonprofit or raising a kid? <laughs> I will try doing both. Yeah. Uh, I, Trying to do both. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Option three. I'd say, listen, raising kids, it's the most rewarding, the most incredible, but man, yeah, that, that, that's harder, right? No doubt. I know that you had mentioned, you know, especially with getting different materials in different languages, and that gives opportunity to bring together other families and organizations affected by this disease. But is it true that you also have a second nonprofit that you guys are working on? And what has that done for you? And how does it differ from Sophie's Hope? Yeah, that's a good question. And this has been something I've been, yeah, that, that I've tried to explain and, and talk about um, a couple different times. So, so, so what we did, so Sophie's Hope, like I said, we we created that. We created the logo really as our, you know, again, I call it our, our 501c3. That is, we are raising a lot, you know, that's where we, we do our golf tournament. I'm running, you know, we're doing the marathon this year, all those things. That is our 501c3. When we started to try to engage with people across the world, you know, it just felt like I needed to do something I guess more of like an umbrella organization, right? Where people felt connected. It was easy to identify the disease. Um, there was another father who had his own 501c3 and we actually kind of started them together. He's out in California and he raises quite a bit of money. So we wanted to find a way to make sure, right? That we work together, that we used economies of scale, but we could fundraise, uh, you know, kind of use our own networks to fundraise. So Pure GSD1B just started as, an umbrella organization that um, that helps bring everybody together so that we don't restrict, hey, if somebody wants to fundraise in another part of the world under, you know, their own kid's name or whatever, and, and we, as long as we're all kind of working together and, and sharing uh, in that, that's kind of how, how we go about that. So CareGSD1B is, and then I also wanted to be able to create a website that was more focused on patients and families. Like if you go to Sophie's Hope Foundation, it's very focused on Sophie and raising money and our golf tournament. And it's very, you know, that's the, the format of it. And it felt like it would just be too big to try to do everything. So the Cure GSD 1B website is a place for patients, doctors, anybody that wants to learn, really learn more about GSD 1B can go. And it's, it's, it's also a place where we have our patient registry landing page. We have other signups and stuff like that. So it was a way to separate out kind of the, the Sophie fundraising versus the Cure GSD. But it, in, in all, it, it's basically, uh, it's one in the same when it all comes together. Because we Sophie's Hope Foundation funds and runs Care GSD One B, so um. I love that. And part of one of the things that I'm fascinated with, I love research and I love to see what kind of unique changes are coming up for our kids in their future. Can you talk a little bit about the new mouse model? Because I spent a lot of time reading about that after we talked last time and. Although we have different types of glycogen storage diseases, diseases, I feel like they are intertwined and may offer some of the same treatments. What does that look like for you and what kind of hope does it give you for the future? 
Yeah, and I will. I will. Will I want to touch on a couple of the different treatment things, and then um, the mouse model why it's important too. And I know Snas, you know, very familiar with that as well. But you know, for us, from a an, a treatment perspective, I think you know we have some we have good things going for us. It's a single gene mutation. It's in the liver. We've done. There's a lot of good basic science out there. So. The reality is that whether it's an mRNA treatment or a true gene editing, like we're very, very confident that that type of a treatment would work. Uh, gene editing could cure GSD-1B. Um, so we're, we're very confident and optimistic about that in a good way. Our patient population size has always been the challenge, right? To get drug companies excited, to get them to work with us. We are absolutely, I think since we started, Cure GSD-1B and Sophie's Hope, we have gained a lot of traction, which is great because we've gotten organized. We offer a lot to these, these biotech companies. So I think there's a lot to be excited about for us in that space, especially as technology moves, moves so quickly into these incredible spaces and these companies building platforms that can tackle multiple mutations and move up and down the genome. So so we're we're absolutely excited about that. And our the most model that we created really was just a way, I think in a lot of rare diseases, like for us, a most model existed, multiple most models existed, but accessing them was a problem. You know, it was either in a lab somewhere in, could have been Italy, it could have been here and all sorts of different places. And for, you know, unfortunately, whether it's doctors, researchers, you know, the collaboration is not always the best. Um, and there's always reasons, you know, for people not wanting to share. So what we wanted to do was create a conditional knockout model, which is very easy for researchers to work with um, and have that available. Jackson Laboratory helped us create it. They're incredible. Um, and that mouse model will be available very soon. Um, and it's publicly available, no restrictions, you know, nobody can say, you know, so that, that's what we wanted. We wanted to have a most model easy to work with that was not a barrier for people to do further research on GSD-1B. Um, so, which it had been in the past, the most model, like it's very difficult because of how severe the disease is. The mice die very fast when they're born. So for young researchers, they were having a run to the lab the minute mice were born. And it just, it's very difficult. So the new knockout models help, um, help with that for sure. Yeah, open access is the way science has to be. I'm, I'm glad you guys are going down that path and making these mice available at Jackson's. Uh, I built my mice, mice with Jackson's lab as well and it's available for anybody to use. Uh, and the cool thing is, you know, they they have like a public website where if, if a researcher was to Google, you know, GPX4 knockout mice, they will find uh, the Jackson Laboratories website and they can order right there and they don't even have to talk to me because sometimes I could be slow to respond and I don't have a doctor title behind my name. So people are not really confident and why should why they should reach out to it right so but no we did and jackson labs i mean full credit they they worked with us on it they were incredible to work with and you know they they uh it should be ready pretty soon so and we had a doctor specifically a doctor in italy that was helping guide the whole process too so good collaboration and again he's completely on board with the the publicly available concept I, you know that we didn't want to get into another situation of no no this is my mouse right this is this is anybody's mouse this is gsd1b's knockout mouse model so yeah that's amazing what um treatment development um efforts are you guys 
fundraising yeah. for or, or fundraising. Yeah, so I think one of the one area where we have actually have a pretty good success story is with the drug repurposing. So um, nutri- we talked about the neutropenia in GSD-1B and that, I mean, although I think a lot of patients and families would say the metabolic control is, I mean, that's the, the if we could fix one thing, I think we, we all would want to obviously fix that. But neutropenia is, it's a really difficult thing to manage and, you know, it can lead to IBD. It's, it can get very severe, I mean, in certain patients. So, um, we, there was researchers in Belgium that discovered, um, uh, repurposing a, a type two diabetes drug called, uh, though the brand name here in the U S is Jardians. People see commercials. It's well known. It's, it's easy to get, it's affordable and it actually works, um, to, to correct the neutropenia in GSD one B by removing it's, it's crazy how it works. It removes a toxin out of the body, um, that otherwise would kill the neutrophils. So full props that, that, yeah, those, um, the doctors in Belgium that discovered that incredible, almost all GSD one B kids now are taking it and adults. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a good success. So that area though, we do continue to invest in. So, so we will want to keep learning about that, that treatment, um, making neutropenia go away, actually curing it. Um, and then we are focused on, um, at developing an MRNA treatment and then eventually a, a gene editing treatment, uh, cure as well. How did the, how did the Belgium researchers discover this drug? I'm curious to learn more about their process of repurposing. Um, just a lot of, uh, of trial and error from their side. Like this was before, you know, major screenings and stuff. And they had a hunch through, you know, what, what they could use that for. And it's an SGLT2 inhibitor. So it removes what's called 1,5-AG from the, the blood through the kidney. And that's what was killing or is um, killing off the neutrophils prematurely. So before we had that drug, um, kids were getting, we were using mostly, it's called GCSF. So basically a daily injection that would really just pump more white blood cells into the system or more neutrophils. So it really was a band-aid solution because it wasn't keeping them alive or making them more healthy. We were just putting more in. And for Sophie, it was a daily shot, which that was terrible having to give her that every day. So so far, so good with that, but that's a really, really good success story. But we do continue um, to invest in that area to, to further understand that and, and make it even better. So, um, so that's it. I wanted to touch too. You mentioned previously about some of the challenges that you face with also having a strict diet. What does that look like for Sophie having to manage that? plus the daily cornstarch and, and for your family, what kind of changes did you have to make? Yeah, that's, that is tricky. That, and that's kind of one of those things where, yeah, it's, it's, um, diet for a little kid, a five year old, I mean, diet for anyone is tricky, but for her, you know, she gets cornstarch and it's not a little bit. I mean, she's getting a, a big thing of cornstarch that she has to drink every three hours during the day. And then overnight it's every four hours. Um, so everything has to be perfectly timed. And I'll say for most part, everyone's a little bit different, just like we all are. So there's no like cookie cutter, like this is the exact way to do it. A lot of it's trial and error and what works for your kid might not work for someone else's. Um, and we've gone through some ups and downs of like, 
great metabolic control for a couple months and then oh crap something changed whether she's growing or she's fighting a cold um but it seems to be like there's always something and then in between the cornstarch trying to get those meals in because i mean they have to keep getting nutrients i mean cornstarch is not enough there, there's nothing to it all it's just uh it's just a complex carbohydrate so trying to get those meals in, and then really what you're trying to do is limit sugar almost to nothing. I mean, as little as possible because the body can't, doesn't absorb it. It really just sits in the liver if you give them too much. So we always try to keep it to under five grams of sugar per meal, but for the most part, no added sugar, sugar in anything. Um, and low carbs too, because I think what people, people try to compare it to diabetes, but in GSD, if you have too many carbs, your blood sugar spikes like anybody and kids with GSD, their insulin kicks in and they crash really hard, really hard, really fast. So it's a little bit different in that regard. So it is, it's always a balancing act. We measure out a lot of her meals, a lot of her food, We're trying to figure out how many carbs exactly work. Um, and then your we do use the continuous glucose monitor now. So we're constantly watching that. And if we see her sugar going down, maybe it's a little snack, but it's con it's a constant balancing act. Um, and something that, that you're trying to figure out. And as kids grow or fight a cold or hit puberty, like it can really cause some major changes in how that's done. So it's, uh, it's quite a science to figure out. And I was curious too, because Sonneth and I talked about, uh, probably about a year ago about what that transition looks like when we start to look at school and preschool and kindergarten. And I know that even when we first met, um, Sophie was having kind of a difficult day at, at school. And that's just a tiny glimpse into what her day might look like, right? She, I think, even came home early that day and you guys had to make some um, transitions for yourself. What has that been like when you're looking at giving up some of that care, because I think I struggle with that sometimes, um, what that looks like, because it feels really great to, um, you know, quote unquote, have a break, but it also doesn't feel like a break because you're still managing it from home. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this was her first year. So she went to preschool this year. We held her out like COVID, everything going on. There was just no reason. She had this one year of preschool and she only goes three days a week, three hours a day. And the preschool is in our neighborhood. So we're not exactly taking any, any big risks. And Margot, you know, has had to give up a lot of, of her for her time and her career um, to make sure that she's taking care of Sophie. So she is the one constantly monitoring the Dexcom. Um, the Dexcom helps, like, especially as kids get older, like having that Dexcom with them to measure their blood sugar helps a lot. Um, for Sophie at the preschool, again, it's just three hours, three times a day. But I, I mean, that first day we dropped her off. I remember other parents like celebrating it, you know, oh, my kid's first day of school, I'm free. And Margo and I were walking home and I'm like, it's just like I, my, the anxiety and the, the stress was just there was it was worse. It was almost better when she was just home with us. So, you know, hopefully over time that gets easier. Um, I think, too, like when kids start going to kindergarten, you know, we're already working. So she's not even actually enrolled in kindergarten, but we're already working with the school on her medical plan, a 504 plan. Um, and trying to make sure that she has a one-on-one -on -one aid because it's just too, things happen too quick and you can't rely and, and not that the teachers 
aren't knowledgeable, but you, I mean, a teacher with 20, 22 students in a classroom, there's just no way you can expect them to be watching a Dexcom or monitoring, you know, a student for, for hypoglycemia. So the school's been good for us. We'll, we'll see for next year. I'm worried about kindergarten, you know, but kids do it. They, they, they go, they can do it. So we'll, uh, hopefully we have a good plan in place. The school seems like they, they're really willing to work with us and make sure she's safe. And I don't think we'll be celebrating the day she goes to school. We'll probably be nervous and watching the Dexcom, but, um, but those are the things we, we certainly think about. We're already thinking and worrying about it. I have to ask, are you guys getting the new G7 Dexacom or what's on your radar? Uh, yeah, so we will. We're not in a rush, not for any, I mean, crazy reason. I think for Sophie, so the new G, so the new G7 for people that, that don't know is Dexcom's new continuous glucose monitor. And it is for, for Sophie, the big win is the size of it. And I'm sure for Evie too, um, because it's like, I think it's, 30% the size of the existing one. So today the Dexcom takes up almost the whole back of her arm because she's so little. This new one is like the size of the dime. So we are excited for that. Um, I like to let technology work some of the kinks out on the, the you know, when they release things like that quick. But um, but when we're up for a refill, we'll go to that that G7. It's, it's hopefully, it'll help her. It'll be smaller and uh, I hope it's more accurate because that's that's still a big problem is the accuracy for us. I'm looking forward to the warm up period as well. So just like uh, Jameis mentioned that right now when you put a new sensor on, there's a two hour window where you can't get readings unless you do it manually. The new G7 has a proposed 30 minute warm up window, which to me is life changing, less pokes. Evie's going to love that, I think. And it's also one piece, right? So right now we do a sensor and then we put the transmitter on top of that. Again, a lot of lingo that if you're not in this world, it might be confusing, but um, it's just one less thing. But I'm also want to let the kinks work out because you know, even with the G6 being around now for a while, we still, we get a bad sensor, we get bad readings, like nothing's perfect. Yeah. And I think just to relate to kind of rare disease in general, right? Like these continuous glucose monitors, like a lot of tools, right? They're, they're made for the more common population, right? So Dexcom's not worried about the GSD population when they build the their Dexcom. So it is it is very good and accurate for people with diabetes for GSD. I think it is a phenomenal tool for the toolbox, but it does not like we still finger prick her a lot as do most GSD parents and, and adults with it. So it is so far from perfect. And I, I don't obviously don't want to complain about it. Um, but it's just, that's the reality of what we live in. Right. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're not, you know, they're not going to make changes for the, the rare disease, you know, the, the GSD community, but we are fortunate only like two or three years ago, did they start accepting it as acceptable for GSD? Um, so you think back uh, all the people over the years that didn't have this and sent their kids to school and basically told the teacher, Hey, if my kid looks dizzy or starts sweating or is acting strange, you know, can you send them or her to the nurse? I mean, that's scary. Um, so we are definitely fortunate to have this tool. I wish it was perfect. I think we all do, but 
It's definitely better than nothing. I will absolutely say it. I'll take the false alarms over not knowing. It's just two years since they accepted this tool as a standard of care for GST. That sounds, you know, type 2 diabetes has been around for a long time and type 1 has been due. And I'm pretty sure these glucose monitors have been around for a lot longer. So I'm surprised that it's been just two years since it's become a standard of care. Yeah, I mean, honestly, don't quote me on that. Could be three. Like we didn't get it for, we didn't put it on Sophie till probably a year ago. There was a paper published by, you know, there's actually been two published about GSD's use with it that helped because also the insurance fight. I mean, people still fight with insurance, you know, like that, that is a constant. Everyone will say like, and I'm sure Brittany went through it too, right? Like, do you really need Dexcom? And it's like, well, who are you to, yes, Mike, you know, like if it helps keep her safe and alive, then yes. And and you deal with the, the multiple no's until you get it. So I think that was part of it as well. Like, I think people always knew it would be a useful tool, but getting, you know, getting people behind it, getting some published papers on it to actually see how it's working. And I'd say it's still not like, like I said, it's not perfect. So, you know, we can look at trends and kind of see things. But if you're really trying to make tweaks to the cornstarch dosing or diet, you're still probably going to be doing a lot of finger pricking before you're making some decisions. But the Dexcom is good at picking up a low, kind of get, you know, in case something bad's happening. Um, it does not pick up highs, which is dangerous for GSD because of the crash. But in type one diabetes, that's less, or in diabetes, that's less of a care because they don't have the insulin kick in. So, but it's a good tool. That's what I say. It's amazing. It's it's great to have that in your toolbox. Um, I, I was looking at the website, and it looks like you can get readings on your phone, which means you can watch her readings remotely while she goes to school. <laughs> That's what we do. And it's like, well, that's what I said that first day. I mean, we still do, but like, yeah. And so she brings, she has to have a little cell phone. She brings that with the receiver to school. So it will beep there. But then my wife has hers set up to her iWatch. I have mine on my phone. So that is, it's, and again, we live in a different time, but I, I think about those parents, you know, years ago that had to send their kids to school with nothing. So we definitely, definitely fortunate with that. Uh, I want to take a moment and uh, understand a little bit more about older kids in your community, um, teens or, or or even older. I don't know how, um, how I don't know what the oldest patient is, um, but how do they? What what is it? What does the quality of life look like for them? Yeah, we have adult patients now, and again, they, they you know the you can you know the ones that have taken really control of their health and are, are very strict about it. Um, you know, we have a few patients in the 1B community that have had children too. Um, some, some mothers in there, that was a big, that was a big change. That was a big deal. So I think our adult patient population now we have, but we didn't before, if that makes sense. Right. Because cornstarch, I, I, I think was like early nineties, it was discovered. And before that, I mean, GSD one B was a, it was a fatal disease, um, like a lot of GSDs, right. And like a lot of diseases. So we are starting to get that adult population. And I think, you know, you also look back on how hard it was for them as kids, right. And then their families and not having all the technology that we have. So, um, so there are a lot of them that are doing okay, but there's a lot that have some bad complications, right. IBD is like a, 
IBD and chromes from the neutropenia is a really, really big problem for a lot of the adult patients. Um, you know, so we always like from fundraising and talking about things, we're always talking about the kids and curing kids, but we have an adult population that deserves, you know, to, to sleep through the night, right? They, you know, they, they have their, they're taking care of themselves. So they have the alarms on their phone to get up, drink cornstarch, have a snack and that sort of thing. So, um, we are fortunate to have that adult population and they're so helpful, like with our families and with everybody. So it is, uh, it is a unique perspective, especially with how much harder it was for them. Um, you know, before we had all these treatments and websites and that sort of thing. So, but it will, but I will say, I know you said quality of life, right? I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but I mean, some of them have challenges. You know, we did a presentation for the FDA, you know, and we had an adult patient talk about like she really never been able to hold down a full time job because it's just so hard with having to take a break. And when can she drink her cornstarch? She can't be driving in a car when she's going to take her cornstarch and she gets tired. You know, she doesn't have the same energy as someone else. Um, so those are some real problems that we've seen. Um, I hope uh, your foundation's efforts can bring in some therapies that improve the quality of life of these patients. I'm, I'm assuming if the cornstarch consumption goes down by even 20%, you're going to have a, a phenomenal improvement to quality of life or sleep. I think the the goal is no cornstarch, no no doubt about it, but I agree with you 100%, right? Because I remember when we first started doing this, um, because again, when, when we first started, we were so new to this, right? And it was, you know, what would you, you know, I, I was, it was all or nothing, but now I'm seeing the importance of incremental steps, right? Even this, this Jardian success we had for neutropenia, um, the Dexcom, right? You know, improving, improving the quality of life today while working on that cure, which we know technically it can be done, but we know how damn hard it is to get from point A to point B with that. Right. And that's just the reality. So, um, so yeah, but I completely agree with you. The, the cornstarch, I mean, it's there's a lot of side effects that come from drinking all that cornstarch. So I would love, I would love nothing more than never seeing Sophie have to drink that again. And there was even a little bit of a cornstarch shortage yeah, sure here in, in Minnesota a couple of months ago. So it was one of those <sighs> things that we do. <laughs> We have, we have to laugh about it. Right. It's like, I, I, it's just, I had, you know what? I posted something on the Sophie's Hope site, like of a picture of all the cornstarch and a shortage. And, you know, my, my a friend of a friend brought a couple bags over. So now we're fully stocked people in, and, uh, but yeah, it's, you can never catch a break shortage of cornstarch. Anyone ever thought that would happen? We do get a, a lot of heat if we do have people over because we have a Target plastic large storage bin that's just full of white powdery cornstarch. And um, it's a, a good topic of conversation, <laughs> that's for sure. We, uh, we renovated our kitchen and part of our design was all of Sophie's medical supplies, right? So corn, we have a shelving for cornstarch, the, the scales, all her other medicines and stuff too. So I, and I know I'm not alone with that. The rare disease, you know, that's everyone's got either closets in their house, rooms in their house or something. So yeah. My son has but taken over the, the master bedroom entirely. He has two full <laughs> closets of his stuff. It keeps filling in. Yeah, you do what you got to do. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I think this has been a fantastic conversation uh, with you, James. Thank you so much for taking all of your time and talking to us. Um, 
is there a wisdom that you would like to leave uh, with our listeners today? Um, yeah, I think I think from a way I appreciate it, you guys. This is great what you guys are doing. I think for us, and and when we I talked about kind of starting a foundation, I think you know it, it's finding that balance so that you don't burn out, right? I think I think early on when I you know I was you know going 150 miles per hour and and you know, not sleeping and doing all that, you got to be careful, you don't burn out. And I also think it's, it can be really discouraging to compare yourself to others, right? So like, you know, we're all different, right? We've all got different strengths. So find your strength. And, you know, I also tell other, you know, find an organization, you don't have to start your own. If one exists, great. I mean, it's not easy running all these organizations and staying compliant and paying to all the things you got to do to run it. So, see if there's an organization that exists, join in, help. Um, and if there's not, and you are comfortable doing it, go ahead and start it. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody about it, but it's, um, but it's definitely, everyone has their own path. Everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses. And once you start accepting that, like, I think I've gotten much more comfortable in kind of our efforts and our work in, in doing that. So it took me a little while to get there, but once you, once you do that and you accept that, my path is probably going to be different than your path, Sanath, and, and, you know, ours is going to be different than, you know, an organization that's been around for 30 years and we're doing the best we can. And, um, and that's all you can ask for. So yeah, that, that would be that. I know I said closing thoughts, but I have to ask you another question because you brought up mental health and um, this theme of mental health seems to be recurring in all of our podcasts. So how has your, approach to mental health changed um, since you were going down the 150 miles per hour pace to today? I think I'm better now, to be honest with you, because I, th I think early on there was that fear. I just, if you, if, you know, for me, I, I felt really dumb, right? Like I just, you know, I, I, I was calling doctors, I was calling scientists and I just, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable in what we were talking about. So there was definitely sleepless nights and, and the stress around that. But then I just think like, I don't know, you, you get used to too. like, I mean, just worrying about Sophie and her health is a lot more stressful than worrying about, you know, where we're going as an organization, because, you know, I know we're doing the best we can. We're working hard. I think we're, we're making inroads, but those, I think that first year I constantly worried, like, are we doing the right thing? Is RareX the right decision? Is this the right decision? But then you start saying, hey, you know, something's better than nothing. We're moving in the right direction. We're working hard. We're, we're doing this. Uh, you don't have to be an expert in anything. Surround yourself with smart people. Um, but it, it certainly that first year definitely felt like a burnout for me. I, there was a point where I almost hit a wall. Um, but then you took a step back and I stopped comparing myself to other groups and other people. And, you know, and I got help too from, uh, you know, other families that wanted to get involved and participate and help us with education and awareness. And I think that's made a big difference. I think when you feel the community get behind you, right. Meaning, meaning I care mostly that the GSD one B patients and families are excited about what we're doing. Right. And that they, they're getting value out of the education and the awareness and they see that there is hope for a cure and that we're working on it. So to me, that helps keep me going. And I think that's been the big thing is connecting with other families. So, yeah. Thank you for opening up. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I mean, I hate to with, be with the pun here, but you're telling me it was more like a marathon similar to what 
you're gonna be running here so I just wanted to wish you the best of luck and thank you for your friendship and everything you guys have done in the rare disease space because it's so profound and powerful and I know that our family in particular is really grateful to have you so thank you so much thank you I'm glad we can make an impact thank you Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The SETD5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare.